I released the book of basketball in 2009. I swore I was done. What else was there to say? The book was 704 pages long. I figured out the secret of basketball with help from Isaiah Thomas, then used it to rank the top 96 players of all time. I blew up the Basketball Hall of Fame and turned it into a five-level Egyptian pyramid. I figured out the 33 greatest what-ifs ever. I solved every MVP debate. I made the case for Russell over Wilt. I explained why MJ was the greatest ever. I wrote hundreds of pop culture references, at least 250 inappropriate jokes, and God knows how many footnotes. I even drove to San Diego for the epilogue to spend time with Bill Walton. And when the book reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, that was all I ever wanted. I was done. I swore to myself I would never do a sequel. Well, I kind of lied. So much has changed in the NBA these past 10 years. I couldn't help going back. Who could have seen the three-point boom coming? Curry's Warriors going 73-9? and The Harden trade? The player empowerment era? The process? Advanced metrics? The decision? Cleveland winning a title? I repeat, Cleveland winning a title? Well, why write a sequel when I could turn that book into a living, breathing podcast? Something that juggled interviews and pyramid podcasts and rewatchable game podcasts about famous games? What's my top 100 now? What's my pyramid? What's the new biggest what if of all time? Could the 86 Celtics have handled the 17 Warriors and all those threes? What did I learn from spending so much time over the last years with people like Bill Russell, Magic Johnson, Kevin Durant, Jalen Rose, Isaiah Thomas, and so many others? Think of it as my basketball book coming to life in audio form, reinvented, reincarnated, retooled, recreated for 2019 and beyond. It's the book of basketball 2.0. It's launching on November 6th. Presented by State Farm. See you there. And welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. I am joined, as always, by uh, my the Juan Soto to my Anthony Rendon, Zach Cram. Zach, how you doing? Hello. I'm excited to finally have some time to rest away from the playoffs. Yeah, uh, I have not had as restful a weekend as I would like because my cat kept waking me up while I was trying to to sleep in because he wants food every four hours. Um, but anyway, uh, you might notice the absence of Ben Lindbergh. Ben, uh, in accordance with baseball tradition, has opted out of this podcast, and so uh, <laughs> he will not be uh, he will not be joining us today. But that's fine because uh, that gives Zach and me more room to talk about uh, the Apple TV Plus series for all mankind and uh, break down some immediate post World Series news because there have there have been news. Zach, is news a plural now? All right, the, that's the uh, the thing. You ever see the King and I? I, I was in not. pit orchestra for the King and I when I was in uh, in high school, and there was a line where the King says, "Yes, there are news." So, anyway, let's we're just gonna go uh, straight down a list that I've created and shared with you. Uh, we're gonna do uh, some quick news reactions, and then we're gonna break down free agency. Uh, so the first thing up is a set of managerial hires, and let's just lightning round these. Uh, what are your thoughts on Mike Matheny to Kansas City? I admit, I sorry to Royals fans, but I laughed when I saw this news because it seemed so fitting that a team with maybe a, a 
history of being somewhat backwards in terms of analytics adoption uh, would hire a manager with the same reputation. But I think actually, more seriously, a manager who oversaw a clubhouse in the St. Louis, which got a lot of feedback about allowing things like bullying of rookies that have fortunately mostly been phased out of baseball these days. And uh, it's not a great thing in Kansas City, a team that is bringing in a, a lot of young players to have a manager who has in the past allowed such an environment to flourish. Yeah, that's my big thing. Like, I don't really give a damn about his bullpen management because it doesn't matter a ton and it won't with this royal team for the next few years, the clubhouse stuff from the end of his reign in St. Louis. Like he's like if if he were if I were hiring a manager, uh he would need to prove to me that he's learned you know what he's learned from that because that would be borderline disqualifying. And, and even then, like there are dozens of other qualified candidates who uh don't have something like that on their track record. But at the same time, this team's gonna suck for the next few years. He probably was hired to be fired uh when the the Royals are starting to get good and they disappoint for the first time. So like this I, I hate to just wave off a franchise that was in the World Series and won the World Series within the past five years. But this just feels like a, it, you know, everybody joked about it happening and then it happened and we're all going to forget about it until until they fire him in four years. So that's sort of where I am with that. Uh, speaking of laughing stock franchises and uh, participants in the 2015 World Series, the Mets fired Mickey Calloway and have hired Carlos Beltran. This one I, I actually do find quite interesting. This is the opposite reaction to the Matheny one for me. I love this hire because Beltran has been a, a player of interest or a, a retired player of interest for other front offices before. I think he interviewed for the Yankees job that ultimately went to Aaron Boone. And the obvious connection is Beltran's famous strikeout to end the 2006 NLCS, but he was an awesome player for the Mets for many years. And he seems like he has all of the qualities from even when he was a veteran player that pointed as he's going to be a future manager. And maybe it came a little earlier than expected, but teams are no longer afraid to hire recent players. And Beltran seems as good a fit as any player of that caliber can be. Yeah, I would want somebody. I, so there are two misgivings uh, that I would have about Beltran. One is the the lack of high-level big league coaching or uh or minor league managerial uh, experience that, you know, he is essentially in that Aaron Boone type. And, you know, I think Aaron Boone's been a pretty good manager. So that's not that it's not automatically disqualifying. The other thing is, you know, this goes back to like when Ted Williams was managing that like great players sometimes get frustrated as coaching. This is throughout sports. They have frustrated coaching players who aren't as good as, as they were, but you know, everything I know about Carlos Beltran as a, a human being is, uh, yeah, that he is smart and easy, you know, easy to talk to, and has just that universal respect. And the other thing is, you know, we make a big deal about whenever a white guy speaks Spanish and the importance of being bilingual uh, and managing in a, managing a, a big league clubhouse. You know, Beltran obviously has that as well. And for some reason, uh, Puerto Rican or Dominican or even you know Latin American, U.S. American uh, managers don't, um, you know, they don't get a uh, credit for for being able you know for being able to communicate with everybody in the clubhouse, which I th- I think is is a near uh, automatic qualification for for a modern manager. So like my my big thing is like what does he want with this Mets job? Because that's it's a tricky job as Mickey Calloway you know, proved. Maybe he made it a little more difficult than it had to be, but I see he might not be successful. But I don't think it's going to be his fault. There's just so much more 
chaos with that job than than with most. So I yeah I wish him well. I am certainly a big fan of Carlos Beltran. I I hope he does well uh, in this job or after this goes south in his next one. Um, Joe Girardi of the Phillies. I you know as a Phillies fan, I kind of wanted Dusty Baker, but I you know just watching Gabe Kapler the the past couple years, I was. I wanted someone a little more boring with just like a little more base level competence. And I think Girardi has the capacity to like, he has the, the gravitas, um, the experience while also being open to, uh, to what Beltran, I think it was Beltran in his introductory press conference was calling information, you know, empirics and, and communicating that well to players. So I think that the, the Phillies might've gone, uh, the automatic overcorrection to the experienced hand, but as experienced hands go, I think they got a good one. I was a, a Yankees fan for large portions of Girardi's tenure, and I think he's a good manager. He's not the best in the league, but he is certainly, I think, above replacement level if we have a way to come up with warm wins above replacement manager. He has averaged 90 wins a year in his major league career. He won the manager of the year award in his lone year in florida before being fired where he was the the only person ever to win manager of the year with a with a losing record and it's just a funny footnote but you could say well it's easy to win 90 games when you have the yankees payroll but the phillies probably should have the yankees payroll and after this offseason if they make another big signing or two very well may and i think yankees fans by the end especially gave Girardi a lot of grief for being fairly inflexible with his decision making he always went by what his binder said he should do, but his binder generally incorporated information in a, in a smart way. And I think the Phillies could use uh, an even hand, as you were saying, uh, after Kapler. And I also think, like, I don't think he was doing a terrible job at the end of his Yankees tenure, uh, but I'm also a big believer in the fact that sometimes you just need a change. That, exactly. like, that, like, you know, he was there for close to 10 years and it's any ten, professional full 10 years was it full 10 years. And mm-hmm. so, you know, any professional relationship that lasts that long you know, sometimes just you need to shake up the message. And that's not an indictment of the players or the organization of the or the manager. Um, and so I think this is a good situation for him. He is a, a steady hand um, for for a team that I think really needs one. Um, speaking of experienced hands. Uh, Joe Madden, this was, I think, as as obvious and telegraphed as the Mike Matheny move. He's going to uh, Los Angeles, or I guess it's just the Los Angeles Angels. I keep wanting to to call them Los Angeles of Anaheim, even though they haven't actually been that. Uh, I wrote a pretty extensive column about this when the hiring happened, but I'm curious uh, if you have anything to add to that. I agree. People should read your column because the Angels are an organization at a crossroads both on and off the field. They have Mike Trout, but haven't made the playoffs in a half decade and need a manager who can help them get there. But in addition to that, they are under an an investigation after the tragic death of Tyler Skaggs, which seems to have had organizational involvement, possibly some sort of drug cover up. And Madden hasn't dealt with this kind of issue before, but when he spoke at basically any press conference after Addison Russell's suspension for violating the league's domestic violence policy, it left a lot to be desired. And I think, as you pointed out in your piece, that's a big concern, given that here's another example of something that Madden won't want to talk about, but you kind of have to if this is 
if if you are the public facing angels employee now. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's not to say that he can't learn from that experience or that the that uh, changing or changing the organization um, won't really force him to reevaluate the, the way he dealt with that. And it's also, you know, somewhat different conversation. So, you know, I, I think from an on-field perspective, obviously the longstanding angel ties is a, uh, you know, he was a coach and a player for some like 30 years in, in that organization. Having him come back was, um, it's an obvious feel good story. He's another guy who I think the message, uh, you know, the fact that the message got stale at the end of his Cubs tenure doesn't mean the message is bad and a, a change of scenery for will work well for him. Um, but yeah, it's the, the, I mean, it's the off field stuff, which is frankly more important than the baseball right now uh, for that, for that angels team. So, you know, I hope he handles it well, uh, but I, you know, he's given us reason to doubt. So, you know, I, I hope every, yeah, I hope that that hire turns out, but you know, I, I think it's, it is at the same time a slam dunk and also something to worry about. So we will, we will see how that goes. Jace Tingler, uh, another first time manager from the Texas Rangers organization will take over for Andy Green in San Diego. Um, you know, I didn't really get a good feel for Andy Green as a manager, but this is a, a Padres team that you know, last year I think was a free hit after they signed Machado uh, in free agency and they had some, some pitcher injuries. Um, but uh, Fernando Tatis uh, coming up as a rookie, uh, Francisco Mejia coming up, coming up as a rookie. You know, maybe they they're still a year away, or they were still a year away. Now, I think in 2020 they're going to be expected to contend. Uh, Tingler seems fairly well regarded, um, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, the interesting thing about him, I think, is that he has both a coaching and front office background, but he also has experience working in player development and. One of the issues it seemed with Green was that a lot of the Padres' prospects did not advance and improve like you might have expected them to. Players like Manny Margot, who have kind of stalled at the major league level, and given San Diego's future right now is in either AAA or making their first uh, introduction to the bigs, it makes sense that they would want a manager with that kind of experience. But more broadly speaking, like I don't know much about Jace Tingler in particular, but it's interesting that this offseason, it isn't like a couple recent offseasons where like every team that wanted a manager would hire a very specific kind of candidate. It seems like this winter we have former players hired as first-time managers. We have former successful managers like Girardi and Madden and Matheny. And then we have this new guy who hasn't, managed a big league club before wasn't a notable player but uh still has the kind of blend of front office and in dugout experience that would seem to be attractive in this age of trying to get analytics passed down from the computers to the clubhouse yeah i mean what i'll say about that is like the combination of of coaching and front office experience like that describes uh, AJ Hinch, who mm-hmm. I, for my money is the best manager working in baseball right now. Uh, it also describes Gabe Kapler, who, uh, you know, I think I've made my position on him quite clear over the, the past couple of years. So, you know, it's not, it's not just the background, it's the personality and how you implement it. And I think we'll, we'll get a pretty clear picture of that with Jace Tingler is, you know, he, des- he deserves a chance to, to show what kind of manager he is. Cause you, you know, you never really know. Um, and that brings up the, the last one. There are still a few vacancies, but the last one that's been filled as of now, uh, is David Ross to the Cubs. Um, this also felt telegraphed. I don't know. Like it says a lot about how meaningful 2016 rightly was to the Cubs 
that David Ross, who played two seasons as a Cub and 13 seasons for six other teams, uh, is now remembered as like this Cubs hero when he was basically John Lester's designated catcher. And yes, he hit a home run in World Series Game 7, and he was, by all accounts, a sort of spiritual leader of that team. But it's just very amusing that that is now his legacy when he spent the first 13 years of his career bouncing around other clubhouses. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I think my dislike for this hire is prejudiced, at least in part, by my dislike for him as an announcer. Well, uh, he's I guess off it, your TV now. I know, and that's like... I will say, like, that was number one. Like, I don't, you know, I, uh, he's not going to be on ESPN anymore. I think that certainly the viewing public is a winner in this hire. Um, he could do a good job, but again, it's just another recent ex player, another feel good hire with no experience. And, like, you know, what does Hensley Mullins need to do to get a, a big league managerial job? Because, you know, and like, not that, uh, to my knowledge, he wasn't ever seriously considered for this, but, like that would be he he would be interview number one for me if I were hiring a manager right now. And he's still like he lost out to Aaron Boone. And like I said, Aaron Boone, very similar background to, to David Ross. And he's been great, I think, as, as Yankees manager. But uh, this is not the hire I would have made. Yeah, Boone is, I think, the best case scenario of how this turns out. Boone, another player who is very fondly remembered by a fan base for something he did in his playing days and was hired without the experience hired from a broadcast booth but the cubs are in a really tough spot because as we have discussed they have gone from a potential dynasty to a team that missed the playoffs and they've had worse results in each of the last three seasons since winning and they have players like Baez and rizzo and bryant who are entering their final seasons before free agency and it's just a, a tough spot for someone who doesn't have any experience in this regard i th- I think Dusty Baker wouldn't have been a choice in Chicago given his history there, but a manager like him, he's the guy, ju- yeah, somebody like him is the, is the guy that you need. This is a really yeah. tough job. Even Girardi, so. who was a, a mm. cub could have been a pretty good choice here. And Ross could end up doing a good job, but there's a heady amount of downside given the roster situation they're in. And it's hard to know what Ross brings to the clubhouse. There was a report that, he got the job because of a mock spring training speech he gave in his audition, which maybe matters. There are a lot of behind the scenes things that managers do that are probably more important than whether they choose to hit and run in the seventh inning. But I don't know. That seems like a pretty weird criteria to use when making such an important decision. I don't even know what to make of that. I don't even know. Like, I don't know. So could you give, we'll a, could you give a inspirational spring training speech off the top of your head? Uh, I could recite the Herb Brooks speech from Miracle. That's kind of what of I was head. thinking too. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I, I don't know how Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer would react to me saying, yeah, I'm sick and tired of hearing what a great team the Soviets have, but. You know, Nine times out of 10, we'd beat the Royals split yes. spring training squad, <laughs> but not this game, not today. <laughs> you were born to be hockey players. And then Anthony Rizzo goes, what? 
There are always more ways to win on FanDuel Sportsbook, and it's easy to get your winnings when you want them. With FanDuel Sportsbook's cash out feature, you can end your bet early and claim your cash with the push of a button. Plus, FanDuel's fast payouts mean you can get your winnings in your pocket in as little as 24 hours. Money lines, spreads, totals, parlays, props, teasers, and more. FanDuel Sportsbook has tons of bet types available every single day. Plus, they always offer unique betting promos to spice up game day like boosted odds, score bonuses, and parlay insurance. With so much to bet on across 17 different sports, FanDuel Sportsbook is sure to have a wager that's right for you. And best of all, you can place your first bet on FanDuel Sportsbook risk-free. If you lose, you'll get a refund of up to $500 in site credit. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app with the promo code RINGERMLB to bet from anywhere in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, or Indiana. If you lose your first bet within seven days of signing up, FanDuel Sportsbook will give you a refund of up to $500 in site credit. That's promo code R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. 21 and over and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, or Indiana. First online wager only. Site credit expires in 14 days. Cash out not available in all markets. Terms apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net or in Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Your MLB show is also brought to you by Burrow. Your Burrow sofa can handle the rattiest game day hang with a kiln-dried Baltic birch frame and durable fabric that's naturally scratch and stain resistant. Burrow is totally customizable. Pick your fabric color, leg finish, armrest style, and length, and even add a chaise lounger ottoman. Built-in USB chargers, you can look up game highlights for hours after without worrying about your phone dying. And Burrow sofas are easy to set up and easy to move. You can always add or remove seats as needed. Burrow offers free one-week shipping, so you can have your new sofa set up by next week's game. Now, I just spent the month of October watching playoff baseball on my Burrow love seat. It's been through extra inning elimination games, the occasional scratching by the cat, the occasional food spill, and it's seen me through safe and sound. So if that sounds good to you, you can settle into a comfy new Burrow sofa as well. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping at Burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash MLB for $75 off a new sofa. Now it's time to go to the champions uh, who did beat the Soviets in the uh, in the medal round of the uh, of the Olympics and are now parading through Washington. The Washington Nationals, they seem to be doing this right. Uh, I think the, the when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup a couple of years ago in a very similar situation, a team that, you know, Washington it, like exists in, the, in this entire Washington bubble, but also had this core that had fallen short and never really come close to winning a title finally gets over the hump. And you could just see like and Max Scherzer in particular has talked about this, like how much he had found himself identifying with Alex Ovechkin in, in terms of just, uh, you know, being a guy at the very tail end, you know, a Hall of Famer at the tail end of his prime and finally getting that title and how much it means. And and uh, it's been fun to watch. Uh, uh, the Nationals, of course, went to a Caps game over the weekend uh, and uh, and took off their shirts and to, to the great amusement of the crowd. They seem to be having a good time. Uh, Trey Turner uh, teaching Juan Soto how to play hockey, uh, explaining what a hockey puck is to Gerardo Parr in a, a short video. So just go... Find all that stuff on the internet. It's, it, it'll bring a smile to your face. Yeah, I actually, now that the playoffs are over, was able to log off this weekend. I went for some long runs. I read a book, and I missed all of this. So I am excited to catch up after this podcast ends. Were there any particular highlights I should look at first? Uh, I mean the the shirtless press or the shirtless luxury box thing is uh, 
is certainly a highlight for me. I think that's the the big thing. Like they're pouring beer down to to people sitting below them, signing the empty empty cans and chucking them into the crowd. I think you know. This this soon after winning a title, like shirtless in public, is about where you want your your championship athletes to be. Makes sense. J.R. Smith became known for it after the Cavaliers won the title. I think yeah. at the ringer, we even made a game for it. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, I mean, it. with that said, we also probably need to talk about the fact that because, by virtue of playing in Washington and being a, a team that... Uh, tends to be whiter and more conservative. They went to the white house um, where Kurt Suzuki put on a MAGA hat and was greeted with an awkward hug from behind by, by the president, Sean Doolittle to nobody's particular surprise uh, decided to, to skip the visit. Um, this is not new, you know, Carlos Correa skipped and I think Beltron did as well. A couple other Astros uh, skipped the visit when they went to the white house um, after the 2017 title. Uh, I don't know how much there is to say about that because it feels like the the skipping the White House visit has taken uh, like the discourse around that, I, and I think rightly so is is taken a turn. Um, I can't even remember if we talked about that on this pod uh, after the last two World Series, but you know it's as as much fun as it is to to watch the the Nationals, you know, get their money's worth out of their celebration. It, this was just right around the corner. Yeah, and a lot quicker than I think. The Red Sox didn't visit until they made a trip uh, midseason last year. Right. And that Usually was, that's what happens, but, but in know, the White House is just down the road, so you might as well do it. Yeah. Of all of these skips and visits, the Red Sox one, I think, resonated the most in the narrative because was it that all of the white players on the roster ended up going while players who were not white did not attend and there weren't, I think, such clear dividing fault lines? in terms of who visited and who did not this time around. So it gave way to, I think, less less broader resonance uh, amid everything else that's going on. But as you said, it's not a surprise that we are going to continue to have this conversation every single time a team wins the championship. Yeah, and, you know, I think for as little, uh, as few things... uh, as have been constructive in American politics over over the past five years or so, I think like reevaluating the White House trip as a political um, as a political event, like even a partisan event, I think we're, we'll be better off if we view it like that in the long term. And you know, it's it's not. I don't know that there is such a thing as like an apolitical office of the president anymore. And I think that's you know we might be better. Yeah, it might be uncomfortable, but I think we'll we'll have a clearer clear way to grapple with reality i guess uh, if we if we start viewing it that way and who knows maybe we'll we'll start talking about how how weird it is that like we're the only country that plays the national anthem and god bless it well or whatever the equivalent of god bless america is at every sporting event you know how overtly political uh organized sports have been so you know not that we need to we do that enough on the show we don't need to belabor <laughs> that point but you know the nationals are they went to the white house like today so as we're recording so we we do have to talk about that um okay if as much as i want to talk about the washington national shirtless escapades we must move on uh to Araldus chapman who uh, there've been a few opt outs and extensions uh Araldus chapman is one of them he has opted out of his contract and then re-signed adding one year, $18 million to his contract. I don't know. This seems fair enough 
it seems reasonable for both player and team. I think Chapman probably was worried uh, by Craig Kimbrell's experience in the free agent market last year. If Chapman had opted out, the Yankees would have certainly offered him a qualifying offer, and then he would have been subject to draft compensation loss for whichever new team signed him. And from the Yankees' perspective, we know how much they love their bullpens, and having already engaged with the engaged with both trading for Chapman and then re-signing him following his suspension. Uh, they have kind of already committed themselves to this player and adding him for an extra year f- seems to fit with what they're doing in a lot of different respects. The concerning point for Chapman, I think, is just what will he look like in a couple of years? His velocity since 2016 has dropped by a mile per hour every year from 101 to 100 to 99 to 98 on his average fastball. And once you get down to the high 90s, that's there's I think there's a big difference in hitability between 97, 98 and 100, 101. So we've started seeing him use his slider a lot more. Of course, the most recent pitch he threw was a slider that Jose Altuve hammered for a pennant winning home run. But Chapman, by and large, was still a very good closer this year. Will probably be so next year again, less certain in 2021. Yeah, I think the the concern about his decline is a, a big reason why. Um, it made sense for him to to do essentially what Clayton Kershaw did last year. Um, you know, and this is even if the the player doesn't opt out, it's yeah, this is why you have the opt out is you can use a little bit of you know, use it to to create leverage. Uh so that's you know, I don't I don't want to say like good for Aralis Chapman, you know, given uh uh everything we know about his behavior off the field, but uh, you know, this is how the how the buy or how sorry how the opt out is is supposed to work. So it, this seems like it'll work out for him. It'll work out for the Yankees. Everybody uh, walks away pretty much happy. Um, to the Atlanta Braves have done something much lower stakes but kind of interesting. Uh, they declined two million dollar or sorry they declined options on both Tyler Flowers and Nick Markakis for six million dollars in twenty twenty. Paid the two million dollar buyout and then re signed both of them to $4 million one-year contract. So the money is exactly the same. But what that does is that shifts the uh, the payroll burden, I guess a third of it, for those two players back to 2019, their 2019 books instead of their 2020 books. Uh, I'm not sure why they bothered because this is not a team that I was led to believe was going to be anywhere near the competitive balance tax. But you know, maybe if this is a sign that uh, that they're going to the, that they're going to spend big, then you know, Good for the Braves, but you know it's inter- you know it. I guess no harm done if the players get the same money they were going to make anyway. Uh, but yeah, that's one way to look at it. The other is that it's just another really annoying example. Not that we needed more, but it's another annoying example of how financials in baseball have conspired to create all of these weird contract incentives. I'm reminded of the trade that the Dodgers made with Atlanta where they basically took on more money, but because that money was distributed differently, it was advantageous for their luxury tax situation. And like you said, I'm not quite sure why the Braves would be concerned about their luxury tax number, but it's just another example of how writing about baseball has forced us to become a moonlighting economist to try and figure out what's going on. And it's disheartening as we enter a winter, which we'll talk about in a second, where I'm sure free agency will linger and linger and linger. And we're already starting off on teams manipulating dollar figures to 
improve their standing. Yeah, I mean, I hope this means we're going to spend more, but given the Braves' uh, track record, although, you know, I'd say that. They signed Donaldson, they signed uh, Dallas Keuchel. So, you know, I wrote at the beginning of last offseason that this sort of upper middle class of free agents is where the bargains are. If you're willing to to spend something approaching sticker price for good players, then you're going to get good players. And so maybe this sets up the Braves trying to, to do something like that again, because they're losing Kimbrell, they're losing Donaldson um, and a couple other players. But, you know, they do you mean Kimbrell instead of Kimbrell? Did I, I, I did that all last season, all last off season. And I'm starting to do the same thing now with Scherzer and Strasburg. And I don't know why, like maybe I too am running low on, <sighs> on memory capacity. Um, Anyway, we'll we'll see what they do with it. This is not in and of itself good or bad. I think it's interesting. It's you know nice that they're they're bringing back two you know two safe sets of hands, but uh, we'll see what they do with this payroll flexibility. Um, and the last piece of news: Steven Strasburg, after uh, after much speculation, has finally opted out of his contract. Uh, that's going to set up our free agency uh, discussion. Uh, so I guess we'll. we'll sort of hold off on what we think is going to happen. We'll come back and talk about free agency, what to expect players to look for, teams that that we expect to be uh, competitive right after these messages. If you're giving everyone on your list Bomba socks this holiday, you deserve a spot in the Holiday Gifting Hall of Fame. Now, I love cold weather, but I hate having cold feet. But it's not enough for socks to be warm. They've got to be supportive, breathable, and that's what Bomba socks are. Bomba socks are soft, like made with the softest cotton in the world soft. They're built with extra cushioning, so whether you're walking the dog, chilling at home, or playing the drums, you'll be comfortable. Bomba socks provide support in places you didn't even know you needed it, like your arches. Each socks is built with a special arch support system that feels like a nice hug for your foot, and they're smooth across the top. No more annoying toe seam. Bombas makes all types of socks. Dress socks for work, performance socks for working out, and limited edition holiday socks. They even have a line of merino wool socks that are soft, warm, and naturally moisture wicking. Bombas is a gift that even that person will love. Even that person who seems impossible to shop for. And for every pair you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Go to bombas.com slash MLB today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB. Bombas.com slash MLB. All right, so that brings us to free agency, which is, I think, certainly uh, more interesting. We're going to talk about, end up talking about this more over the course of the winter than shirtless Trey Turner. Uh, but so, to me, this this uh, this free agent class shakes out. There are three like absolute top end elite talents right now uh, on the market: Strasburg, Garrett Cole, and Anthony Rendon. Which sort of feels weird, considering that all three of them were a huge part of world series teams. Uh, and then I think there's a solid, like a solid set of veteran starting pitchers. I think that's an area of, of real strength. When you look at uh, rich Hill, you look at Dallas Keuchel, Cole Hamels, Hyunjin Ryu, uh, and indeed many other players who do not throw with their left hand. Uh, you know, this is an interesting free agent class. I think I was so wrapped up in last year's class with Harper and Machado that I sort of, didn't think that this class was going to be that interesting, but there are a lot of interesting names. And not only are there a lot of interesting names, I think this class could have been even better had so many really great players not signed extensions. This was when we could have had Paul Goldschmidt as a free agent and Nolan Arenado and Chris Sale and Xander Bogarts and Justin Verlander. All of them signed extensions, so 
naturally the top crust is only three players deep as opposed to like a dozen, but we still have, as you said, a really solid class. And I think some of the second tier position players are quite valuable too. Josh Donaldson, who we mentioned, Yasmani Grandal, who for my money is the best catcher in baseball. Uh, JD Martinez could opt out of his Red Sox contract. So there will be many good players changing teams, maybe changing divisional outlooks over the winter. The question, given the last two off seasons, is how long will that take? Right. And I mean, it's more than that, like Didi Gregorius, Yasiel Puig, like all those guys uh, could end up being on the move this uh, this offseason. So like not just good players, but but fairly big names, too. And yeah, and like this is what during the World Series it was either during the World Series or during the ALCS when Garrett Cole was just mowing down opponents. I think it was Ken Rosenthal came on. um came on the Fox broadcast to say he expects like a record setting contract for, for Cole this off season. And like, I hope he's right. Cause he deserves it. I, you know, I don't know if there's been a, who the last free agent pitcher who just in terms of, of track record and upside and age, you know, the last guy, this good, this valuable to hit the market. And it, it's in a point where so many big market teams like, what could Garrett Cole do for the Padres? What could he do for the Phillies? You know, what could he do for the Yankees even? Um, you know, and the, like the the public scuttlebutt is he's going to want to go back to Southern California. But even like, you know, what can he do for the Angels, for the Padres? You know, that's uh, so I don't know. I I hope he's right. I've just been disheartened by the the way uh, the way free agent spending has gone the past three or four years. In Cole's case, there are four pitchers in history who have signed. A oh, you've got numbers. This is yeah. great. There are four pitchers who have signed for at least $200 million. That's David Price, uh, Clayton Kershaw's extension, Max Scherzer with the Nationals, and Zach Greinke with Arizona. Now that contract is in Houston. And I think I would be pretty surprised if Cole does not become the fifth. I wouldn't even be surprised if he... Uh, doesn't break uh, those records. David Price at $217 million is the top mark. I would guess Cole would probably exceed that, but probably not by much would be where I think he ends up. Because remember last winter, like Harper and Machado, it took forever, but they did end up signing for 300 plus million dollars. They eventually got the numbers. And I think even as great as Harper and Machado were, the way that teams seem to be valuing elite pitching these days makes me think that Cole would be able to get the number he's looking for, but that seems to run counter to every other trend we've seen in the market. So I'm not really sure. Another interesting wrinkle is that the top three players and indeed like eight of the top 10 free agents, depending on how you rank them are all represented by Scott Boris. So it's kind of interesting to see how he himself will be setting the market and how he's angling for both Strasburg and Cole and maybe using leverage for both of them to up their offers is kind of an interesting secondary angle here. And I'm curious to see how it all plays out. Once again, I'm sort of uncertain as to, to what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, the other thing is how many of these guys you look at the market, you know, Grandall, Donaldson, uh, Keuchel, Hamels are like, are coming off of, of playoff teams. And so if those guys get, get moved, like the, teams that are losing them are going to have to to replace them. And so you know, that creates a, you know, a shuffling effect. And, and a lot of those teams don't have internal options. Um, 
not that anybody really has a, a catching prospect, you know, I guess short of like the Giants and the Orioles, uh, not that anybody has a catching prospect ready to to come in and play like Yasmani Grandal. Um, so, yeah, it's I and we're seeing, I guess, more relevant is we're seeing a lot of those guys who just came off of the one year prove it deal. Um, who really should have gotten their four, you know, four years, hundred million dollars, or five years, hundred million dollars, um, coming back to to try again after another year of production and another year of aging, um, you know. But to bring it back to Machado and Harper, yeah, they got the three hundred million dollar contracts, but like Harper's making like twenty three million dollars a year. I think the 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 sheer size of the totality of that deal uh, is undermined by the length of it and i think that was that was on purpose by scott boris to say that he negotiated the biggest free agent deal ever for for bryce harper and it's also being used against him like you know we see it whenever whenever anybody talks about the phillies in our slack channel like they're like oh you know would you want 13 more years 300 million dollars you know like aroldis chapman's gonna end up making 85 percent of what bryce harper's making so it's not that much money and i you know i think Ultimately, I found both of those contracts underwhelming. And so I'm, you know, it's interesting, not just the the Boris involvement, but uh, Colin Rendon in particular. See, they're, they're interesting personalities. Like, I don't know uh, that they're, that they would necessarily be adverse to, to holding out to get the money in the situation that they want. So it'll be interesting, you know, I've, I've said interesting 56 times, but I, I do have a hard time predicting how all this is going to shake out. Well, that's kind of what we talked about when Mike Trout signed his record-setting extension last spring is Trout, because it was so many years, he got the record total contract. But in terms of average annual value, it really wasn't much of an upgrade on what the previous record had been. He's going to make 35 to $36 million a year for the next decade plus. But then every front office can look at that and say, well, if Mike Trout who's by far the best player in baseball is only worth $35 million, then nobody else is going to be able to go above that. And I think that imposes a sort of comparative ceiling on what any other player can ask for. And that that also mirrors like broader macroeconomic trends where you see wage, you know, wages are increasing uh, across American society like very slowly while overall productivity is exploding. And so that it's... Yeah, that's a record contract. Yeah, Harper's a record contract. Yeah, it, it, like every contract was quote unquote a record. Like Verlander was was Verlander a record for for average annual average annual. Wow, I just Philly accented the shit out of that word. Um, average annual value. Um, like even like Blake Snell was like a record for a left handed pitcher of his service timer. And, and, you know, it's a five year, $50 million deal for the reigning Cy Young winner. Uh, and that's all these things are just goosing the, the ceiling by a fraction of a percent while revenues continue to explode. And, you know, we'll see what, what, uh, what kind of reckoning comes down the pike, uh, when the CBA's up, but yeah, well, you know, it's, it, these are, these are strange and unpredictable times. Well, as, uh, I think it was Craig Edwards at Fangraphs last year wrote that if Alex Rodriguez had signed his uh, record-setting contract with the Rangers in 2019 dollars, it would be something like a $600 million contract with $60 million a year. And that's like twice as much as what any of these guys are making. So I think 
you're definitely right that as the broader game is increasing its take uh, at the same time as players are not. So let's uh, look at this. I've got the the Fangraphs top 50 free agents uh, page open in front of me. Is there and like maybe baseball doesn't deserve us just treating this like uh, like an actual on field team building for the purpose of winning experiment. But is there a name on here that you're interested to see what happens to them or, you know, a, a fit that between free agent and, and club that you're particularly looking forward to? So it's less one particular player than a particular class of player. And now that Chapman has opted out, but re-signed with the Yankees, there isn't a defined closer on the market. Like there has been in recent years. Uh, the top relievers are Will Smith and Will Harris from the Astros. And, uh, Dellen Betances, who will miss most of next year because he's hurt. Drew Pomeranz was a very good reliever from, from Milwaukee after the trade deadline. But none of these guys are like top of the leaderboard closers necessarily. And I'm curious to see what kind of contracts they're able to command because I'm not convinced that this most recent postseason proves that like the starting pitcher is back. I think it was just a confluence of two really good rotations that could have easily lost in earlier rounds. And then you know, if the Nationals had lost to the Brewers, we would have been talking about how the bullpen is going to continue to take over the sport. But I'm interested, after the playoffs we just saw, given the relief versus starting pitching markets we've seen in recent years, what the relief pitching market ends up looking like for these, I think, mostly they're considered second-tier relievers, but players like Will Smith and Will Harris have really good numbers, and they probably deserve more than they'll get. Yeah, I think both of those guys, both of the Wills, uh, are going to end up being bargains for whoever signs them. Uh, particularly if if those are teams, if the if they end up with teams that uh, have designs on making the playoffs, because they're going to, you know, it feels weird to say this about the guy who gave up the home run that lost the World Series, but you know, we've talked enough on this podcast over the past month about how nails Will Harris in particular has been. Um, and if he doesn't resign with the Astros, I think he'd be a difference maker, uh, really a closer, probably almost anywhere else. Um, the the one player I'm most interested in, just from a standpoint of idle curiosity, is Madison Bumgarner, because I have such a hard time imagining him in a uniform other than the Giants. The Giants, you know, if they're going to rebuild, he probably doesn't really fit their timeline. So, but what is, you know, where else does he go? Who wants him? And also, how do you value a pitcher like him? Somebody who struggled to stay on the field a little bit without sort of chronic uh, injuries that really scare you off. Like it's been a lot of freak accidents and acute injuries. Uh, and you know, do you pay him like the, the postseason hero or do you pay him like the probably good number three starter that he is now? Um, he's in a class of, of pitchers. I think I'd lump Hamels into this, uh, and probably Keuchel too, where these are big names, but they're also just competent starting pitchers. And how many big market teams do we see undermined for want of competent starting pitching? I think you could lump the Phillies into this. You lump the Twins into this, certainly in the playoffs, even the Yankees. You know, they were looking for somebody who was better than Jay Happ for most of, of last season. You know, even these Giants and even the as good as uh, the Dodgers rotation was or the, or the Nationals or the Astros, like everybody needs another at least one more starting pitcher. And I think that uh, there's this is a, a situation where there's a lot of of a lot of players who fit that need on the market right now. I could see Bumgarner 
being the Keikel of this winter uh, in very similar situations as a lefty about to enter his 30s with a lot of innings under his belt. And uh, he lacks the top level strikeout numbers and peripherals that someone like Strasburg and Cole do. And I think it does make you wonder how he will age, uh, especially something we haven't talked about at all is like, what will the ball look like next year? And how does that affect team building? Because if Bumgarner, who doesn't strike out that many and gives up a good amount of hard contact, if he leaves San Francisco, is he going to give up a lot more home runs and sap him of a lot of his value? And I think I I think other front offices would be rightly concerned about that. But like you say, if you're signing Bumgarner to be a number one or number two pitcher, he probably won't give you that value. But if you sign him to help round out a rotation and be a solid number three or four, and then you can feel pretty confident with him pitching in a playoff series, that's a different story. But we could have said the same thing about Keiko last winter, and he lasted until like June. Yeah, we shall see. I mean, it's not just those guys. And like, I think what makes this class interesting is the number of like, of solid veteran starters where it's not, uh, you know, it's not supposed, you know, there's, there's not going to be a big, um, big ACE level upside, but all those guys are huge names, you know, Ryu and, and well, I guess Ryu was better than that when he was healthy last year. Uh, but he's got all kinds of injury concerns. Um, but like Adam Wainwright, you know, how do you deal with Adam Wainwright and your point about the ball? Fuck man. I don't even know what to do with that. What ball is going to show up? Uh, I mean, I've wrote about this during the playoffs because if if we get the dejuiced ball back, would change nothing else. Next year's going to suck. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah, and, like, and the cynic in me is is um is just waiting for front offices to use that as an as another excuse not to sign people. Uh, so. I you know this is just another thing I hope I'm wrong about. Um, who, who gets more money, uh, Zach Wheeler or Madison Bumgarner? Zach Wheeler, I think so too. Which is yeah, absurd to think about given their if I were a GM, who would I give more money to? Bumgarner. Totally and I say agree. that yeah, as someone who's not a huge historical Madison Bumgarner fan. I mean, I just think like the if I particularly if I were in a team that has a desperate need for a number three starter. Uh, Minnesota, Philadelphia are the the two that, that come most readily to mind. Like, I want high floor, and I think Bumgarner gives you a higher floor wheeler. You know, like, I guess the the big thing is, like, I would be concerned with winning rather than looking smart. And you know, Well, that's I, why you're not a general manager. I guess so. Um, thank you for not saying, and that's why you so rarely look smart. Uh, because you definitely could have gone there. Ben definitely would have. And that's why you're here and he's not. Um, Let's go back to those top three and real quick, uh, let's talk briefly about where we think they're going to end up and where we want them to end up because we did this uh, last year with the top top couple free agents. So with Garrett Cole, where I think he will end up and where I want him to end up is actually the same place, Hmm. which is the Angels. If a team is going to offer Cole the most money, You would think that would be the Yankees, but as I discovered when I did some recent research, the Yankees have not signed a free agent pitcher who wasn't their own, so like not counting re-signing CeCe Sabathia. They haven't signed a new free agent pitcher since Masahiro Tanaka, which was many, many years ago. So I just see after they missed out on Corbin last year that they would have a tough time paying for him while also 
staying under a couple bands of the luxury taxes they seem to want, whereas the Angels have desperate need for starting pitching, and they have the Southern California connection for whatever that's worth with Cole, and they haven't been afraid to spend big on star players before. So I think he both makes the most sense there, and I want him to end up there because I'd love to see Mike Trout in the playoffs, and a rotation with Cole and Otani would just be so entertaining. So here's my worry. I also think he ends up with the Angels. Uh, I worry that there's something in the water there that like they've managed to go this far without converting Mike Trout into any playoff wins. And like now we're already so worried about about wasting Trout and Otani. I don't want to waste Trout, Otani and Cole. So I want to move him a little farther south, send him to San Diego, who, you know, him and Chris Paddock in the same rotation would be a lot of fun. I suspect that you're going to have something to say with the the Padres in their pursuit of starting pitching, however. Well, put Cole in San Diego, and I don't see him giving up a single run all year long. Whoa. <laughs> uh, yes. If we're moving on to the next starting yeah. pitcher, Strasburg. So this is a tricky one. I think the Nationals will try to re-sign one of Strasburg and Rondon, but probably not both. So I will say that they're going to re-sign Strasburg because he's just been the lifelong national and number one pick and he just won the MVP, so on and so on. So I think Strasburg will end up there, but you could convince me he's going to end up as a Padre. Uh, But where I want Strasburg to end up is in Los Angeles with Garrett Cole. The Angels, uh, when they signed Albert Pujols and CJ Wilson on the exact same day, showed that they're not afraid to go after multiple big free agents Uh, They also signed Josh Hamilton to a big contract the very next year. And again, they need pitching. We need to get them into the playoffs so we can see Trout there. Go get both Cole and Strasburg. Uh, I don't quite know how that fits in with their future payroll plans. But I mean, if you have Trout and Strasburg and Cole on a team, then you can print money and sell lots of jerseys. And I think we saw with Bryce Harper last year that it made the Phillies a lot of money by increasing attendance and interest even uh, though he didn't necessarily play up to his contract. And uh, I want the Angels to sign both. I don't think they will, though. No. Uh, well, at the same time, they Artie Moreno is one of the few, um, the few like uh, Illich plan owners left that is like, you know, I have this money and you can't take it with you and I want to win a World Series. Uh, so, you know, I... I could definitely see them making a move on at least one of these big free agents. Uh, I have Strasburg going to the to the Padres. Um, you know, Cole's from Orange County, who played at UCLA. Uh, Strasburg's from San Diego, who played at San Diego State. Uh, this is just a, you know, it just feels too obvious. Um, and yeah, I, even though I, I ordinarily roll my eyes at, oh, the this guy is from here thing, that actually does seem to have a little bit of traction. Um, I want him to go back to the Nationals. Like you said, I think that there's a, that it makes so much sense for, like, it, well, let me put it this way. It makes zero sense for Washington to, to let both of these guys walk. And in terms of being able to replace him, uh, I think having Carter Keyboom this close to the, the big leagues gives them a better chance of being able to replace Rendon internally the way they did with, you know, the the Juan Soto-Victor Robles combination with Harper and allows them to reallocate that uh, that money elsewhere. You know, I think like not just moving it like moving on from Harper isn't what won them the World Series. It was moving on from Harper, replacing him internally and then going out and spending that money on Patrick Corbin was what got them. Uh, finally over the hump. And I could see them doing something similar with Rendon, but I think they need to keep one of these guys. And Strasburg's the the harder guy to replace for me. Um, 
So that brings up Anthony Rendon. So is he going to the angels too? <laughs> he is not. I would put him in uh DC. If I, if they don't resign Strasburg, I think the best other place for him, maybe the Rangers. I've seen very little speculation on where Rendon actually might end up, but with Texas, he's from there. He went to college at Rice and the Rangers are moving into a new ballpark and want maybe a big name player. I think they have a sneakily kind of interesting roster, but it's unclear how they get too much better next year and Rendon would help with that. But the place I keep coming back to for him is somewhere I don't think he'd end up. But hey, last year I said I didn't see Machado ending up in San Diego and he ended up signing there. Uh, I think Minnesota would be a really great place for Rendon. They have Miguel Sano as a third baseman, but I don't think he's a very good defender there. But more importantly with Minnesota are two factors. One is that they just set the record for most home runs in a season and adding Rendon to that lineup would elevate the ceiling even more. But second is that Minnesota's future contract allocations after 2020, they have basically nothing. In 2021, just two years from now, the only players they have under contract are pre-arb extensions for Jorge Polanco and Max Kepler for a combined $11 million. And those are two very good players who should make more than $11 million all by themselves. The Twins have a clean slate beyond them. So if they give Rendon a large contract, it's not like it would be eating into future payroll space. They just won the division, and I would love to see them capitalize uh, on this window of contention. Okay. I hadn't really considered that, but I think you talked me into it. Uh, I mean, Sano there, like you said, not a good defender. Uh, Nelson Cruz, is Nelson Cruz a free agent this year? Uh, I think they have him for another season. So that, I mean, that creates a little bit of a logjam. You can move Sano to first base. Yeah, yeah. I I guess you you find a way to keep all those bats in the lineup. Um, Where, yeah. So I think the Phillies have another big free agent signing to make. I I mean, I was all in on them. Like they should sign both of of Machado and Harper last year, or if not, then one of them and Corbin or Kimbrel or uh, or Keuchel. I did it again. Um, This is a team just based on its own stated ambitions has no excuse to continue to spend uh, below the the luxury tax threshold. So I think they'd make a run at one of these big guys. I'm, I would be interested to see Rendon just because of his, his personality of like, he seems like, it's not just quiet. It's just like, he seems like put off by having to deal with like all of this, which I think would either make him a God or a pariah in Philadelphia. And I'd be interested to see which one that, uh, which one that is. Um, there's a whole opening up there. I can't imagine that they keep rolling my Cal Franco out there uh, in 2020 and beyond. Um, you know, I also think that like, maybe there's a possibility that Anthony Rendon retires and just, just decides to walk the earth that he's like, well, you know, I've made $50 million playing baseball. I've won a world series. I've, you know, there are no more worlds left for me to conquer. I'm just going to go buy an Island in Cambodia where none of you can bother me anymore. I, I think that would be uh, quite interesting if you did that. So from an, that is, in, from an interdivisional perspective, seeing Bryce Harper booed and Anthony Rendon presumably cheered for winning the world series when uh, the Phillies returned to Washington would be pretty entertaining. Although that would, I mean, just elevate the rivalry, I guess. Calling that a rivalry is so weird because I guess the, the two teams haven't really been good at the same time ever. And there, you know, with with uh, there was a lot of there's 
there's a, a lot of grief about like Phillies fans going down there and, and invading Nats park. And there was just bizarre, bad blood about Jason worth. And now somewhat more understandable, bad blood about Bryce Harper. Um, you know, it's, I don't, I don't, it, it's a very strange interaction. I don't know if like, that's a rivalry in the same way that like Phillies Mets or Phillies Braves has been. Uh, I think, you know, maybe next year we'll finally see it. Both teams being good at the same time and chasing the, the pennant at the same time. That'll heat things up. But, you know, I, it certainly couldn't hurt if, I mean, shit, like have them sign Strasburg too, uh, and just make the, make it all like Nats North and, and add that layer of, of, uh, emotional complexity to the whole situation. I say, go for it. Sounds reasonable to me. And, Whatever gives us more content next season. Uh, ain't that the truth? Uh, oh, one last note before we end. I, we're running close to, or I guess over our one hour recording time. Uh, Baseball Prospectus has started uh, its list of organizational top 10 lists. That is essential content uh, for any baseball fan. I say this as a, as a BP alumnus, uh, but uh, a name that, that you guys would recognize has appeared on the Orioles top 10. Big Mike. Big Mike Bauman. Uh, has taken a big leap forward. Uh, they uh, Jeff Paternoster and the guys, uh, guys and girls uh, over at BP are uh, are quite quite bullish on Big Mike. So I'm very happy. This we're just uh, we're one step closer to to Mal wearing the the Orioles Bauman jersey around the office. I'm I'm very excited for this. Might pitch in the major leagues this year because he threw Ooh, quite boy. well at Double A last season. I I can't wait. I cannot wait. So. Congratulations to Big Mike. Uh, continued success going forward. Uh, so this is going to be our last regularly scheduled podcast of the season. Uh, we will come back as needed to address big news, if, if you know trades, uh, free agent signings, uh, that sort of thing, as we did last offseason. Uh, and then uh, hopefully come back to you on a regularly scheduled basis uh, before spring training. Um, so uh, thanks, Zach, for coming on every week and, and shooting the shit with me. Thank you. I'll talk to you uh, when the Red Sox trade bets. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Uh, Bobby, thank you for for keeping us on the air and, and dealing with all of our production foibles. This would not be possible without such a good producer. And thank all of you for listening. Enjoy, uh, enjoy a restful offseason, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>